first thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the mom? No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. And welcome to Eater's Digest, a show about all things food and dining. I'm Amanda Clute, editor-in-chief of Eater. And I am Daniel Janine, uh, producer at Eater. Amanda, I am super excited for this week's episode. We are talking to Eric Adams. Eric Adams. He is the Brooklyn Borough president and also a mayoral candidate. Uh, I wanted to bring him on the show because he has a lot of interesting thoughts around rooftop gardens, rooftop farming, and utilizing rooftop space in urban areas to provide food to the people of the city. Which seems like uh, an obvious thing, seems like such a great idea, and it's interesting to hear about why things like that are not that easy to push through. Yeah, It's interesting hearing someone like that talk about... Uh, food and health and wellness as such an important and central focus of his like mayoral candidacy. So we are going to talk to Mr. Health is wealth. You yeah, know, we're going to talk to Mr. Adams and then we are going to get into some of the biggest stories of the week. Daniel, today on the show, we have Brooklyn Borough President and New York City mayoral candidate Eric Adams. I wanted to have him on the show because he's very passionate about rooftop farming, getting healthy food to food deserts, and using food as a weapon against chronic diseases like diabetes, which disproportionately impacts African-American communities. Uh, Borough President Adams, welcome to the show. Thank you, uh, Amanda and Daniel. Uh, it's, it's great to be here. And you know, you, you started out. You said I'm, what I was passionate about, and I, I am probably one of the few uh, people who have reached this level of government that I am passionate about uh, our universe. Uh, I think far too often, uh, when you are part of government, you become so scripted. Mm -hmm. And you do not have personal narratives that make you uh, and it forces you to look at life in a different way. And I think that the dark moments in my life, um, I was able to um, take them from being burials to plantings. And it led me to a journey of realizing the universality of our coexistence, not only with our mothers, but Mother Earth. Yeah. And I, I view everything through that prism. And so, you know, sometimes you speak with me and you'll say, okay, here's a, an elected official. Then another time you say, wait a minute, this guy's a hippie. Then another time you'll say, hey, this guy is some type of sage. You know, <laughs> I, I, I move through all of these universes. And it's scary at first until people finally say, wait a minute, there's more to life and our purpose than what we were told. I yeah. love that. To to that end, um, do you want to <laughs> tell our listeners a little bit about your background, just a quick bio for those who are not familiar with your work and what you do? Uh, I, I was born in uh, Brooklyn. Brooklyn is the largest borough uh, county uh, in the city of New York out of the five, 2.6 million people, extremely diverse, moved to Queens as a child. 
I was arrested uh, by police officers who assaulted my brother and I, and that's why the uh, the movement around police reform is so important to me. Uh, but instead of saying why, woe is me, I said, why not me? I joined the police department. Uh, I started an organization for, for police reform and public safety at the same time. I became a sergeant, lieutenant, a captain, and retired as a captain. I went on to become a state senator. Then uh, after serving four terms, I became the first person of color to be the bar president in uh, Brooklyn. And on the way, uh, something called chronic disease uh, just hijacked or attempted to hijack my life. I was diagnosed with type two diabetes uh, four years ago, woke up one morning and I could not see my alarm clock. I lost sight in my, my left eye. I was losing in my right, had constant tingling in my hands and feet that was permanent uh, neuropathic nerve damage that would eventually lead to amputation, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, at the American package. Mm. And, <laughs> and start, instead of following the American route of using a prescription, uh, I decided to use plants. And in three weeks uh, of, after going to a whole food plant-based diet, diet, my vision came back. Three months later, my diabetes went in remission. The nerve damage went away. The ulcer I had went away, dropped 35 pounds. Uh, I like to tell people I don't have a six pack. I have a case now. My body's so tight and I feel good every day. <laughs> That's that so funny. is remarkable. <laughs> and I think one of the reasons I wanted you on here is because you have ideas around uh, rooftop farming. And you've talked about how Queens and the Bronx were farmland originally. So can you talk about what you'd like to do there and what kinds of businesses you'd like to build for the city? I'm in this place of one solution solves a multitude of problems. And so we were in the agrarian economy at one time. We're cycling out of COVID. We're going to have a real problem around food. Uh, COVID reveals that comorbidities and pre-existing conditions uh, led to a higher rate of hospitalizations and deaths. Uh, we're dealing with food deserts throughout our entire uh, city, particularly in economically challenging communities. So look at all of those areas and now say to uh, ourselves, our, envi our environment is going through a terrible time because of too many trucks are on the road. So why not use our rooftops? Why not look at using a uh, vertical farming, uh, using uh, everything from hydroponics, and let's start with, with our school system. We feed 960,000 children, children a day. Wow. Why not say, let's grow the food. Mm -hmm. And by growing the food, using rooftops, using classrooms, using empty factory spaces, you will, the person who invent and create, expand the system now will ha would have enough money to leverage long contracts. So if I go to the companies that state that, hey, I'm going to give you a five-year guaranteed contract that you're going to grow uh, the vegetables and some of the fruits that you're going to provide to our school system, you now can leverage that to go into the science and to expand. And what do we do in the process? The trade-off is you're going to teach my young children a nutritionally-based education so they can learn this multi-billion dollar industry of urban farming. They're going to be skillful in it. And these are the jobs of the future because 40% of the jobs we're training our children for now won't be available because of computer learning and artificial intelligence. But we're always going to eat. 
Then we take the trucks off the road that are that are feeding um, our D Department of Education. Then we have the children built into their civic educational plan of identifying food desert, food apartheid, and do nutritionally based educations in their communities so that you can go into the bodegas and local stores and uh, uh, storefronts and start making available fresh fruits and vegetables. Then we go to the Department of Cor Correction and start feeding them healthy meals instead of the meals we're feeding. Right. Then we supply it to the hospitals. So this will continue to expand based on the buying power and the leverage we have as a city. So have you actually been able to uh, incentivize or figure out ways to incentivize or, or I don't know, mandate some farms in Brooklyn already? Or is this something you're thinking about for the future? Well, it's, it's, it's here. Um, we, we put a substantial amount of money uh, into our schools, the Department of Education, one of the largest uh, school systems in the in the country, and we put a substantial amount of money in the schools where children are learning uh, on how to deal with growing food in the in the classroom. We partner with an amazing organization called Farm Shelf, and 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 look at what happened with this group that we partnered with. They have this uh, uh, sort of this unit that's the size of a refridge, where they grow of vegetables uh, inside of the refrigerator in the classroom. The children are connecting mm -hmm. with local uh, public housing to give, the, to give the freshly grown food to. But the children in this school, Democracy Academy, it was an alternative high school where the children were not coming to class. When we bought a couple of units and put them in and allowed them to be engaged with this farming inside the classroom, urban farming, the teachers said, we can't get them out of the school. Mm. They, they found the purpose. So education is not feeding the creative energy of our children. They're, they're not into this rope learning. They're not into this, you know, um, not being able to really look at their creative energy and find purpose. And so some of the programs we have in the Department of Education, they have been extremely successful. We are trying to turn uh, a public housing development called Marlboro Projects. We want, we want to spend uh, close to $13 million to build a two-story greenhouse that's going to teach uh, uh, farming, education around farming, uh, um, how to deal with food deserts. The bureaucracy that's in the way is unbelievable. We okay. have been working on this project for about three years, and that's one of the problems we're having. Too many people in government mm -hmm. just don't get it. Is it about getting the money together, or or is it about building it, or like what what signatures do you need that you're having trouble getting? Great question. It's not about the money. I am allocating the money. We already have the money. The money right. is sitting, sitting mm -hmm. there, waiting to be spent. Uh, we we have we have dueling rules and codes in our city. And we don't have a universal plan on, okay, we want to do urban farming, we want to do rooftop farming, we want to do vertical farming. And so our city and the city's zoning and policies are stuck in the 20th century when the entire planet is evolving, technology is evolving. And so when you go to people in these various agencies that are professional naysayers, they say, well, we can't do that. And you say, why? Because we've never done that. Right. right. <laughs> do you think there are opportunities for private 
public partnerships here too, dealing, working with a lot of the landlords who might be looking for new opportunities to use their real estate right now? Yes, I think that that is something that we are exploring because when you think about everyone is going to take a financial hit uh, through uh, COVID. Uh, when I save, uh, I diversify my savings. So if one part of my savings uh, stock or my CDs go down, at least I diversified it enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, now landlords must start thinking outside the box. How do you diversify your plant? How do you diversify your builders? We see that in some of the uh, towers that are placed on buildings for cell phone usage, but we can actually diversify the rooftops uh, like uh, some of the uh, establishments in the industry city, the Navy Yard. Uh, They have a different greenery grown on their rooftop. Our factories have an amazing amount of rooftop space. We're not going to grow more land, but we have, uh, you know, millions of, of feet of rooftop space that is underutilized, and we believe we can use it a better way uh, to grow food in a more yeah. healthier way. Because I, I assume, like, education is a key component about of this, but I imagine in a dream world for you, all of the rooftops would just be growing the food for New York or for New York to eat, right? Like, it's not just government controlled farms. You'd want a lot of people growing their own stuff as well, right? Without a doubt, uh, I believe that. Uh, we, I think that we should return to an agrarian economy. And I remember saying this to my team two years ago, and they all walked out of the room and said, he must be smoking that weed that's illegal. <laughs> <laughs> you know. And now they started talking to finance experts. Right. Uh, we and they're like, what if we grow that weed on the <laughs> rooftops? <laughs> that's how you make the money. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but we, 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 we partnered with NYU's of mm-hmm. uh, uh, finance uh, team there. They're looking at it, they're crunching the numbers and they said, wait a minute, this guy is onto something. And we partnered with Cornell University uh, and people are seeing the doability of, of actually doing this. And I feel that all of our rooftops uh, can play a role. We can repurpose these rooftops to ensure that we can grow our food. We're going to take trucks off the road, uh, mm-hmm. fresh, vegetables, there's a great opportunity to redefine ourselves as a city. What is the red tape like for a private institution to grow on their rooftop? Like, uh, uh, you know, we're very familiar with, quote unquote, like trendy restaurants having a a farm on their roof. And they're like, you know, after your aperitif, come check out our farm or whatever. (laughs) But like if I have a big apartment uh, complex and I'm like, I want to turn my roof into a farm. It, do I have to, what kind of legal um, hurdles are there or can I just start doing it? No, two pieces, uh, Daniel. And that's very important what you just stated. And I hope the listeners heard you. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> Racism is built into the structure of our society. We're comfortable with a trendy restaurant in an affluent community saying when you finish your tea and you finish your Merlot, now I go up to the rooftop and we're going to handpick some of your microgreens. Mm-hmm. And you know what, it's acceptable. But now you go out to Brownsville and you have a group of residents that are stating, we have all of this, uh, the, the, the footage, um, all of this, uh, the feet, square feet of rooftop, we want to grow and have our gardens here. Now all of a sudden the rule book, rules come out. 
You know, all of a sudden it becomes impossible to do. It is as though in our mind that people in economically challenging communities are not deserving of some of the finer things that we place in other communities. Mm -hmm. And so what the uh, Department of Buildings, the Fire Department, uh, the Department of Health, all of these different entities have not come in, have not come together and started to say, how do we make this happen instead of saying, how can't it happen? That's what we have to do. do. And I partnered with the former councilman uh, uh, in Brooklyn, and we came together and say, it's time to get all of our agencies together uh, that are in this space and come up with ways of making this happen. And uh, that is one of the goals that we have because they're all over the place, they're disjointed, and that is preventing the movement forward. So you'll get a, an approval in one agency just for another agency to be in complete contradiction of another agency. Yeah, no, it's a great point. It's also like the, it's also the perception of what they're growing too, right? Like the trendy New York restaurant people, the perception of what's being grown, people would be excited about it. Like, oh, that's so cool. It's grown right here. But if it's more industrial and it's grown in a lower income neighborhood, the perception would be that it's more like crops for feeding and not, not anything that people should be excited about. So, so true. And I think that uh, people miss the connection that we long for and we need with nature. Not only with the growing of food locally, the plants there, not only is it going to feed your body, but it feeds the anatomy of your spirit. Mm -hmm. Living in a concrete environment, not seeing the health of the food that you're growing, not being a part of, not being connected to nature, we don't realize it, but it plays on us. And it, it takes away from who we are as human beings. That's why you go around public housing, you see a high level of violence, high level of chronic diseases, a high level of stress, mental health illnesses. It's because of the environment people are in. And I truly believe that if you turn it into a more green environment, a more uh, inclusiveness yeah. of with nature, you'll get a different outcome. I think that's, that's really cool. a great segue back into your personal journey. And you actually just read a book about this, um, Healthy at Last, where you talk about how you changed your diet to fight chronic disease and how in so many communities, there's there needs to be a push for this. There needs to be a push for eating healthier. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your goals there and, and how you want to, I don't know, change the way that people eat in certain communities? And think about this for a moment. Three months three months of going to a whole food plant-based diet. I went from losing my vision, permanent nerve damage that was reversed, diabetes was also reversed. My ulcer went away, my blood pressure normalized, uh, my cholesterol normalized in three months. Think about that for a moment. Mm -hmm. The people, and I spent the entire, uh, what has it been nine months now with COVID? Every day of those nine months, I have been in the streets and I'm sure I've been around people who have had COVID. I'm, I'm pretty sure I was in their presence. I was delivering masks. I moved into Borough Hall. I put a mattress on the, on the floor and I slept here and I use it as a, a mobilization from my office in Borough Hall. Now, if we would have spent the last three months, we were feeding people in this city for three months. If we would have said, on our dime, we're giving you healthy foods. We're not giving you nacho chips. We're not giving you 
um, processed food. We're going to give you healthy food like quinoa, which is one of the most nutritional uh, meals people can have. We're going to introduce you to new food. We would have number one, we would have fed people, which was important. Number two, we would have started the process of building their immune system so they could have a stronger immune system to fight off COVID-19. Three, we just started changing the habits that people are so wedded to that believe they could only eat fast food, junk food. So we, we're missing a golden opportunity. My goal is, as my program is at, at Bellevue Hospital, with first of its kind in New York, if not America, where we're doing lifestyle medicine, 750 people are on the waiting list, 200 and about 30 people are in the program, and we are helping people to cycle off their disease and, and medicine and using this new term called reversing chronic diseases. And that is what I believe our health and hospitals should do, and what I want to continue to do to show people how you use food as medicine. And that is what's important. That's what my book wanted to point out, many people believe uh, that their culture is tied to the food that's poisoning them. And I wanted to give a very real, honest story of exposing my weakness. You know, hey, I'm the bar president. Yes, I'm a former state senator, but I'm just an everyday person that I was digging my grave with my knife and fork. And I want to show people how uh, they can live a healthy life. And that's why my 80-year-old mother was able to reverse her diabetes, uh, also get off insulin after only two months of going whole food plant-based. And about restaurants in general, do you have a position speaking to your constituents about how they can get out of this crisis? Um, like many small business owners, they have been so impacted by COVID. And I'm wondering if you see a path forward for them. Yeah, especially with my small restaurants. And I hear some people say restaurants are for rich people. Uh, they should try the days when I was a kid and I was a dishwasher, helping my mother pay the mortgage by washing dishes in a, in a restaurant. Uh, restaurants are for everyday people. Inside a restaurant is a, is a cook, is a dishwasher, waiter, waitress, busboy, girl, uh, low skill, a, a low salary, they're eking out a living, and we have to get our restaurants back open. I believe they're the bellwether of a city. If you don't get them up and operating, uh, it's an indicator of how bad your city is doing. I think the city can do a better job. Stop purchasing our food from outside the city mm. and outside the state. Uh, let's localize the production of food. Let, let's allow our local restaurants to use their kitchens to supply the food. We are providing millions of meals. Let's allow our local restaurants to handle this, uh, dis this distribution of food to communities and really engage them to keep them afloat, to keep people hired right here in, in, in our city. We spend mm -hmm. too much money out of our city and I'm pretty sure other big cities are spending too much money uh, outside of their city limits, going to places that, that it may be cheaper in the short term, but in the long term, keeping your people employed, engaged, and your small businesses open is is extremely important. Awesome. I love that. Yeah. As you so as you look to uh, mayoral run, how much of this are you incorporating into your platform? Like, are these the kinds of things that you will be talking about? constantly or is it just a, a, a portion of your plan a, a substantial portion at the our crisis our health system daniel is not sustainable we have 30 million americans diabetic 84 million 
million are pre-diabetic. We're spending 80 cents on a dollar on chronic diseases. Diabetes is the leading cause of blindness, leading cause of non-trauma limb amputation, leading causes of kidney failure. We can't continue to go down this road. And I'm, mm-hmm. I am really disappointed. Which, which presidential candidate talked about food and healthy food? What candidates running for statewide, citywide offices all across this country? Who's engaged in pro- preventive medicine about healthy food? Everyone is talking about access to health care. What good is it to have a fancy hospital when you're going there to have your legs cut off because of uh, diabetes, neuropathic, neuropathic nerve damage? We have to become proactive. And that's my message. Mm-hmm. I'm going to use help in hospital to ensure we have a proactive approach and give people choices so they don't have a lifetime of being on prescriptions, but they could have a lifetime that's healthy on being on plants. Final thing. Are you 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 said in the beginning that, you know, some people call you a hippie or sometimes you're a hippie. <laughs> Are, what does it mean to be a hippie? And are you are you a hippie? <laughs> I think I am. <laughs> you know, I, I should have been born in the '60s, man. You know? <laughs> uh, I, I just believe. Let me tell you. I think that we had a very unique cosmic shift in the universe, where <laughs> people are really looking for their purpose, and they're no longer looking to just go through the motion of being on volumes and statin, and you know, going home every day, being unhappy. Uh, you know, in Bhutan, when I was there, they judge their country not by the gross national product. They judge it by the happiness of their people. We may be financially sound, but we emotionally bankrupt. And it's time to really start investing in what's important. And that's family, friends, and happiness. All right. Let's grow happiness. <laughs> Love it. Thank, thank you. Thank, thank you. you for Take your care. work. And thank you. <laughs> Uh, your book is Healthy at Last. It just came out in October. Everyone should check it out. Thanks so much. Thank you. Appreciate you guys. Take care. <laughs> All right, Amanda, we will be right back uh, with some of the biggest stories of the week. Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian Software for everything from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200, or two million, or whether your team is around the corner or on another continent altogether, Atlassian Software is built to help keep you all on the same page from start to finish. That way, every one of your teams, from engineering and IT to marketing, HR and legal, can stay connected and move together as one towards shared company-wide goals. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. On June 14th, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. 
Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm Anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14th. Get tickets now. Daniel, we are back. First up, we should do an update on what's happening in the world of COVID-related closures around the country. Um, I don't think a ton has changed from last week. One big one that I saw was Baltimore shut down indoor and outdoor dining. San Francisco, right? Also? Yeah, a lot of California is under lockdown, which was kind of looming last week when we recorded, but it's it's happened now. So indoor and outdoor shut down throughout a lot of California. Now Baltimore. New York keeps dancing with it. No, New York is talking about shutting down indoor, which is happening in a lot of other cities. So I feel like that's pretty normal. It's where when they go into outdoor, where I feel like it's crossing a line for a lot of people. But yeah, indoor New York, I think will probably close soon, soon within the next week or so. Should we should we touch lightly on uh, on the kind of running social commentary about outdoor bungalows and these these massive it's almost seems like it's the internet's favorite thing to talk about right now which is just these giant sidewalk structures that have opened up that people like to say offhandedly like that's not an outdoor that's just right, another just that's a restaurant you indoors built in, outdoors yeah yeah um i think uh you know it's confusing i mean we can t- i ate in a yurt last night if you want to talk about that yeah what, what was what does that even mean for those who haven't okay. been listening to Eater's Digest so, every single week. <laughs> so you may recall that American Express, uh, the credit card company, and Resi, the reservations platform, uh, started a new program where they sent yurts to about a dozen high-end restaurants around the country. Yeah. And it's available only to Amex cardholders. And it's basically an enclosed tent where you can eat with your quarantine pod. Mm-hmm. So Mm -hmm. it has, I went last night to the one at Crown Shy in New York. There's an electric heater on the ceiling, a big table. There's blankets on the walls. They have these like shearling padded seats that you sit on. They have a speaker in there where they play music. Uh, Holy shit. Yeah, you're like in this little tent. So it obviously would not be safe for you to be in there with other people. But if you're there with the person who you've already potted with... Yeah. If you're there with a person you're potted with, then it seems fine. Uh, obviously, you have staffers coming in and out. So at this restaurant, Crown Shy, they have it be... But like Amex holding staffers, right? Yes. Only? Yes, yeah. premium, premium staffers. They um, Gold and above. You have to do a large format set menu so that there's less, I think, interaction and going in and out from the staffer's point of view. But I will say there was still a lot of, a lot of service happening. In the yurt. Was it lovely? At first, it was very weird. Um, <laughs> because I'm used to dining outside, there's like, you forget that there's a lot going on around you still. So it almost feels normal where there's, you can see other people dining and what's happening on the street. And oh, right. So it's a tiny just enclosed like, space. Yeah. It's just like you're in a tent with your with your spouse or your friend. How many people max? The table was pretty big. You could probably have six. Did it feel flimsy in the sense that like if there was a big gust of wind or like. It was pretty, pretty sturdy. Pretty pretty sturdy. sturdy. And they closed off the street. Uh, But once we started eating, it started to feel normal. Of course. But at the beginning, you're kind of like, oh, this is weird. (laughs) Holy cow. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't. One aspect I didn't even consider about these because obviously it's the funniest thing ever 
but I didn't think about how like that's just a thing we would never eat in a tiny room that no. has no doors or whatever <laughs> with even, just your friend even in a party room in a restaurant you would still kind of like feel like you were in the buzz of a restaurant yeah. um that is so crazy more controversially there are these outdoor structures where there isn't really a separation or enough of a separation between the groups of people dining like i've i've seen those out uh so you feel like you're more part of the scene but it's technically more dangerous. More dangerous than a yurt. Than a yurt where you are just with your group. The the weird thing I will say is just the the service aspect. Like how comfortable are you that there are, you know, waiters coming in and out delivering the plates? Yeah. And like is the, you know, are they going to set up the guillotine in your front yard? Who? When the revolution comes. <laughs> but who, who who is setting it up though? <laughs> what revolution is this? The socially distanced revolution. Yeah. <laughs> um, they'll set up a guillotine and they're like, we're doing this, but only in metaphor, stay six <laughs> feet away. I wouldn't, I guess you can drop a, you could probably get a guillotine set up with an app or something. Mm-hmm. I think people actually online are quite confused about these outdoor structures because it's kind of like ideologically confusing. It's like on one hand, people are so like, we have to support restaurants. And on the other yeah. hand, they're like, the structure's stupid and unsafe um i obviously you can do both you can stick to takeout you can stick to delivery as long as you do it ethically um but some of these structures actually with the walls and everything the air moves a lot better and when you're building these structures you're usually putting in tables that have the giant barriers in between which i personally think makes a huge difference and the structures are just freaking cool. And it's cool to eat in them. And I know that doesn't make it any better, but it's, it's cool. Um, what's funny to me is that, you know, for a lot of these restaurateurs, this is the third iteration of a restaurant they've had to build since the beginning of this. Every, and yeah. Each time it comes with new logistical things you have to figure out. And like what service where works here versus elsewhere. Like they were serving a lot of these dishes in these really heavy stob um plates and bowls oh interesting so, they really retain like, really the heat. heavy to retain yeah. the heat but also they said they invested in those during outdoor dining because the wind was like knocking so many dishes over huh. and so they're like oh let's get some cast iron stuff to keep the food warm and make sure things don't just fall over in the wind that's super cool can i it's tell you like that i was so much yeah <laughs> i was shooting a video about a month ago in a in a greenhouse in new jersey mm-hmm the green when they turned on the fans in the greenhouse you could feel it was comfortable but there was such suction of air from one side to the other and i was like let's put a restaurant in here baby like let's you know and it just felt there are there are ways to move the air around that uh i think we haven't really totally looked into but i'm excited about cast iron that really pumps me up any everything weighted <laughs> just like people like reaching down to pick up their forks and they can't even lift it it's like the sword and the stone but then the server you know they don't want to take that many trips to visit your covid tent so they well have don't to call load it a covid trays with all these stuff call it it's an amex yurt. yurt okay not a covid okay tent. so they don't want to take that many trips to your fancy yurt so they just get loaded up with these super heavy trays when the servers were coming in did you know that they were coming or were there all of a sudden, like you couldn't see them yeah. coming really? Or was so there's there a all zipper. of a sudden? Okay. There's a zipper <laughs> door. 
Yeah. Yep. And they slowly unzip it so that you have time to mask up. Yeah. Uh, and then they enter. They slowly unzip it. They slowly unzip it. You know so what? That you're, the, yeah. You have a warning. What's good about this is I don't think that wait staff have actually had it uh, tough enough this time. So it's good that they would have this new barrier of awkwardness. Yeah, it's extreme. That is so crazy. I think Amex also gave them a decorating budget. So oh, at Crown Shy, there's a little neon light in the yurt with their logo on it. And they have like garlands all around the roof. And what else did they have? I don't know, just all these little touches that I guess Amex must have given them money for. This is like an optimally exciting thing for me because you can be a little bit snarky about the fact that it's Amex, be entirely excited about the fact that they're supporting restaurants, be excited about seeing the kitschy shit they put in them. God, mm -hmm. what a perfect storm. Yeah. You mentioned to me offline that you were going to make it a point of in the next couple months going to each city and going to every single Amex outpost. <laughs> So you've done one. <laughs> yeah, I'm, so I've done one. So I just have to go to the rest. You know, I haven't I haven't been on an airplane during COVID, but this seems like a good enough justification. This is probably why you should start. Yeah. Yeah. I really hope well, someone does that because it, it does not no seem one, out of the no realm. One, no one will do that. No, I, <laughs> there might be, you, you know, food travelers, they get they get intense about this kind of thing. There might be someone who wants to hit all the yurts. You don't know. <laughs> One uh, more note on this whole uh, on on uh, I guess California shutting down their outdoor dining, which has been a, a major theme of this week. There's a video circulating online um, starring starring sorry a woman named uh, Angela Marsden who owns a restaurant called Pineapple Hill Saloon and Grill in Sherman Oaks. She is visibly distraught because the government has ordered her to close down her outdoor seating for her restaurant, which she refers to as the last you know, lifeline for her business and her staff. And she's walking through the parking lot where they have mandated her lockdown, no more outdoor dining. And she walks over to a tent, another tent that looks virtually identical to her outdoor setup. Her outdoor setup's nicer. You know, it's got planters, whatever. Mm -hmm. but it looks virtually identical. And she says, this. you know, this is the biggest slap in the face. This is a film set that has been set up in the same parking lot that, you know, was set up after they told her that she could no longer operate as a restaurant. You know, it's not like the film set. It's the film kind of crew hangout area, I, I assume, right? The Craft yeah, services. Craft services. That's where they eat. In the moment, yeah. it's so hard not to side with her entirely. Like, I obviously don't see much value personally in shutting down outdoor dining. I understand that it's a lever they pull. And I understand that people, you know, can go overboard with outdoor dining. But I just think it, it shows that, like, yeah, you can say, like, you know, film sets are getting COVID tests. There's lobbies that help film sets stay in business that make sure they have the right government um, approvals and everything. But like in her position, she is right that it is bullshit that this film set is open and operating, doing the exact same thing that she wants to do. Yeah, I don't think they should shut down outdoor dining. Um, this case is a little different because all these people are getting tested all the time. It's the same group of people. At a film set. It's not the same. It's not like they close down outdoor dining and that they're letting this other thing happen that is the exact same thing as my thing. It's like, actually, this is a locked in group of people who are probably getting tested every single day. 
They know every single person who is around them at every moment. Uh, I think you're missing the fact that they're making a movie about giant outdoor dining setups. <laughs> and so, in fact, it actually is the exact same thing. But yeah, I mean, um, this is, the whole world is, that's what this world is that we navigate. It's full of these contradictions. No one's being targeted. They're just being forgotten about because they don't have as loud a voice in the room. Yeah, I mean, they're being, I think they are kind of an unfair scapegoat and they're not getting any support in exchange for having to close down their whole businesses. Yeah. Okay, what, what else you got? I feel like the biggest story of the week for me was the DoorDash IPO. Uh, a, certainly a big story. What, uh, what did you make of it? I think it's just, and I've seen a lot of commentary to this and in the restaurant space, it's just sad that restaurants are closing every single day and they're facing an existential crisis. And yeah. DoorDash, a company that has been capitalizing on commissions from restaurants, uh, is going public at a crazy high, I think, $60 billion valuation. Yeah. It's just depressing to me. Yeah. $60.2 as of today, Thursday. I mean, what was that article? There was an article where Grubhub said that they were some flashy thing about how they were removing some of their marketing fees from restaurants. They -hmm. were like allowing restaurants to use their QR and use their menu system without paying additional marketing fees, which was like, they thought they were doing something nice, but I was like, I didn't know you guys charged for additional marketing fees. So like, congratulations on being a hero on something that I wasn't even aware of. Uh, I'm sure restaurants are, but, um, on, the Pivot Podcast, which is a podcast that our colleagues at New York Magazine do, uh, Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway, they were talking about this. And I think Scott had some really interesting points. First of all, he called them part of the menace economy, which yeah. I really appreciate that phrasing. Uh, basically, they are taking advantage of vulnerable workers and vulnerable restaurants to create their business. So you should keep that in mind if you want to be an investor. Uh, his other point, which I think is a big one, is that there's no reason for loyalty with DoorDash versus the competitors. Like there's no unique thing that they do that you can't get at Uber or Grubhub mm-hmm. Seamless or another upstart. So there's no reason if you're a consumer or if you're a restaurant customer to stay with them. And he thinks of that, that as their big vulnerability um, in their offering. Yeah. I mean, except that you can start to buy Dash passes, they'll start to, I guess you're right. Like there's no actual brand loyalty. We've talked about it a lot, how these behemoths don't actually care. They care about the food space. Like they care Mm -hmm. about people making food and delivering food, but they don't care at all about the actual people doing it. They just need people to do it. They need the people who are doing it most efficiently to do it. So, I mean, it's why they end up working so well with fast food, because their timing windows just work so well. Um, it sucks. It sucks. Yeah, it's sad. Uh, and they continue to try to find ways to get around anyone who is regulating them. So, you know, commission caps have spread to many urban areas, including New York and LA and San Francisco and Chicago just passed one. Chicago city council signed off on a 15% cap for third party ordering services, uh, and now DoorDash added a $1.50 Chicago fee to every order in Chicago to try to make up for their lost revenue from this cap. 
So they're just like <laughs> sneaky companies. I mean, I, I do think that what's nice about this versus their situation before is the fee goes to the consumer, not to the restaurant. So at least it is showing more transparency to the consumer of what they are paying for versus before they would just take these commissions from restaurants and consumers had no idea. It, it is better. I mean, you think about the way they compete. They want to drive down restaurant food prices so that they can offer things for cheaper to the consumers on their menu. So like people are always like, why don't the consumers just pay all the fees? And it's like, well, then you'd be paying double for your McDonald's burger and then you wouldn't use the app. It's just another friendly Amanda Clute reminder to call the restaurant if you can, uh, ask them how they want to get you the food. If, yeah. if, and if they don't answer, whatever. I mean, if you can pick up, that makes a big difference. And well, if you uh, go to a lot of restaurant websites now, it says it. It says, please order from us directly, and they have a link. Um, I did that this week, and it's you feel so much better than doing DoorDash. You feel better. The, the sad and the, the thing you do acknowledge when you do it is, man, this shit's clunky. Like you're <laughs> using no, scroll down was, boxes. It's fine. It's fine. There's a lot of good competition out there now. These people are just using toast. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's way better. I mean, I've seen a yeah. lot of restaurants. They'll have it like, here's our thing. And then you look at their spreadsheet and then you fill out an Excel sheet, take a screen grab of it, send it through email and then send them like a PayPal thing. I think the user interfaces are improving. I think the competitive advantage these big platforms have is the marketing. So to the people who don't know what they want to eat, they feel like they have to be on DoorDash so that those consumers can get to them. Um. Like I was, I saw on oh, Instagram, someone yeah. was, someone, yeah, like there, it's the discoverability thing. I saw on Instagram, some restaurateur complaining about this IPO today and Tom Colicchio responded, you should just not use them. But for so <laughs> many restaurants, yeah. they feel like they have to, they need to be in that marketplace because they need to reach these customers who wouldn't know about them otherwise. Okay. Next up, there was an article in the New York times talking about the next, the next wave of like, of hoarding or um, runoffs, I guess, at grocery stores, pharmacies, is of antacids. The New York Times said, oh, they call it, for a nation on edge, antacids become hard to find. Which I think actually ties two stories together. I don't know if you, you heard about the story where dentists were saying that they saw a huge surge in, like, cracked teeth. Oh, yeah. During COVID, mm -hmm. and they attributed it to Did stress. I tell you I cracked a tooth? I had to go Jesus, to, no. I this is the, the best, though, because I think this story is bullshit. So you're no, yeah. It's not. I went I went to the dentist in you're just May at home chattering in May yeah. when um, the dentists weren't even supposed to be open yet, but they could take like, quote unquote, emergencies uh, mm -hmm. to fix. Don't my sell your crack short. No, kind of I, was, I could have lived with it. Uh, but they fixed my cracked tooth in May. And then I just went back. I've, I've gone to the dentist like four times during this pandemic. I yeah. just went what? back this week really? to get a cleaning and they were saying that everyone's <laughs> teeth it's just like they're just gnarly because people aren't taking care the of themselves <laughs> they're like eating not super healthily the dentist was like i think it's that they maybe just like fall asleep in the middle of the day and forget or they just don't know what time it is it's like oh god so it's it's bad for dentists you've right been now. four times well, also pandemic related, I went, I, so I got my tooth fixed and then I got a cleaning in the summer yeah, and then they found nice. a cavity, which is my first cavity uh -huh. of my entire life. I think it's because I was eating so much candy, stress eating candy. So then I filled my cavity and then I just went back for another cleaning. 
Yeah, this is Dr. Lauren Bleich. Bleich. And she says, there's also a lack of activity and exercise. Weight gain definitely contributes to the heartburn and acid reflux. Yeah, people are stressed. They're not really eating right. They're not exercising as much as they would be. I get it. A run on the Tums. There's been a run on Tums. So that's the next uh, frontier. I assume we'll see some like crazy aftermarket or some third-party Tums operations. They're going to arrest some guy with a, a garage in like the middle of Ohio. He's got like $5 billion <laughs> worth of Tums just hoarding, ready to cash out on Amazon. I don't, I don't think they'll arrest him for that like they did with the hand sanity guy. <laughs> the hand sanitizer guy. That was kind of a nice story. Didn't he donate all the money to charity or something in the end? I, it doesn't matter. He was such a dick. <laughs> <laughs> he was hoarding not, masks yeah. and hand sanitizer to then flip it for profit. Right. So when I said that was kind of a nice story, <laughs> you're saying you disagree? <laughs> Just a little bit, yeah. Didn't he donate all the charity because he was forced to by society? <laughs> he had to go to jail. Because <laughs> he had to go to jail. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess it's a good good season for Johnson & Johnson. Uh, they make Pepsid. And for whoever makes Zantac and Tums, like one of the pandemic winners. <laughs> uh, we got some mail because I said I referred to uh, oh uh, Oatly. I said that Oat in a previous show that Oatly was having a great pandemic or something like that. People people weren't thrilled. <laughs> well, that's you know there um, are there are there are people who are making money off this thing has to be said it has to be said uh i guess to wrap up amanda i'm curious what you think about two separate stories one that kfc is making a movie about what is he sexy colonel or whatever Mm -hmm. they're doing like a two minute is it a two minute movie with him starring mario lopez they're calling it a mini movie but i think it's just like a long commercial it has to be longer than two minutes according to who i don't know like oh you're saying you you assume mini movie it can't be two minutes yeah that's not it that'd be it wouldn't be a movie you're right. Um, yeah. And that, and give me your thoughts on that, and also the Lady Gaga uh, Chromatica Oreo. Okay. So, Mario Lopez starring in a mini movie for Lifetime as KFC <laughs> Colonel. I think he has an, I think he's, the plot seems to be from the teaser that he's the in house chef for this estate mm. and has an affair with the daughter who's supposed to be marrying someone else. And, I think someone tries to murder him. Uh, Quickly, for those who don't know, this is because KFC got a lot of good press, or good press, I don't know, um, by their new like CGI kernels for the last couple of years have been considered attractive. Yeah, I, th- I think in general, their marketing is always trying to be a little bizarro, you know, like that's what they go for. So this is in line with that. Uh, a lot of people online were super psyched because they thought, oh, this is funny. Like something absurdist is a relief. And then there are other people, including some of our coworkers, who were just outraged that KFC would spend money on such a fluffy, stupid thing at a time when, you know, their peers in the restaurant industry are suffering. I think it's like, you know what, if it brings someone joy, why not? Well, I guess their why not would be because you could bring more people joy by saving their lives. But they're um, not gonna they're not gonna do that, right? They're gonna spend the money behind in behind the scenes ads in and some stuff sort anyway. of yeah. marketing. The it's marketing just because this is a new thing. It doesn't mean that they were gonna they were they, they weren't sitting in a room being like, 
you know, should we give this to Roar or like food banks or right. a ridiculous Mario Lopez feature? And they're like, yeah, the well, we've is ruled like... it's six to four Mario Lopez. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think, you know, the CMO has her budget and she spends it on marketing. And this is what she decided to spend it on. Uh, or he. I don't know. It made me it made me laugh for a minute. So, yeah, fine. In terms of Lady yeah. Gaga Oreo, uh, I guess I was disappointed that it was a color and not a flavor. Uh, I'm always curious about the new Oreo flavor releases. This, I think, was just vanilla, but it is multicolored. Um, what, what's your take on it? I think the best marketers in the world work for these giant sugar corporations. Mm-hmm. It's frustrating to me to see companies that, like, I don't really support. Like, you know, I'll eat fast food and whatever, but I'm not, like... I'm not, you know, try. I, I don't hope for the success of the fast food industry. Um, it's it's upsetting. It's upsetting when they do things like this that I'm like, wow, that's awesome. Like Lady Gaga looks better. Oreo looks better. Perfectly planned campaign. I'm super interested in just having these. Like the packaging looks great. Makes me want to buy Oreos. Makes me want to buy her album. And wow. that's why, yeah. So really, really worked. I, really worked i mean i won't touch either of them because i don't i resent my own impulses but um yeah but yeah i think i think that if you haven't seen the chromatica design work like it just feels very it feels very oreo and very gaga you know to me yeah so those are my thoughts on that um hey we've had a wide-ranging episode you know from uh we have a a wonderful mayoral candidate to Lady Gaga. All right. Well, thank you to Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams. Thank you to you, Daniel. And we will see you back here this week, next week. We will see you back here next week. 